The message is entitled, A Glimpse of, a Glimpse of Glory, Matthew 17. Let's pray. Well, we thank you for this passage. What an amazing experience that impacted Peter, James, and John for their whole life to see a glimpse of their majestic Savior just there in his glorified form and, and yet there on earth. Lord, it impacted them for a life. And yet Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy, even his experience, and that is the word of God. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, that we would be a people that is focused on your glory. So whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, Lord, you would sanctify us the place that our focus is laser on your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus has given a challenge to the disciples. Remember, he asked them there in chapter 16, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, well, some say, well, some are Elijah, this prophet, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he said, Peter, flesh and blood had not revealed that unto you but the Heavenly Father. Every time a person comes to Christ and they realize who Christ is and all that he's done, and they submit to the call of Christ on their life, that's because God personally opened their eyes to who Christ is. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six, says the same God who spoke light into darkness is the one that has spoken the light of the glorious gospel into our heart. He's the one that turned our eyes on to who Jesus was. He's the one that shows us our lost condition. Without Christ, we're hopeless. That's God's grace in our life. The old gospel song says, It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So then, Jesus tells them that he's going to go and suffer many things, and he's going to die and give his life and be raised on the third day. And Peter grabs him and pulls him inside and says, don't say that. That's not going to happen. And for one minute, he's speaking for the Lord. In the next breath, he has to be rebuked by Jesus for speaking for Satan. See, Satan offered Jesus the crown without the cross. And that's what Peter was saying. Lord, you don't have to do that. And so he has to rebuke him and the Lord says to Peter, Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan, because you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. The disciples, after all they'd experienced, all they'd seen, their plan was just like the rest of Israel. Jesus can raise the dead. He can heal people. He can feed people. He needs to be our king. But that wasn't God's plan. There's no crown for Jesus without the cross. And so he rebukes him, and then he turns to his disciples, and he said, if any man would come after me, you need to understand what this is all about. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus isn't looking to join your life. 
so you can just have a better life and have your best life now. He says, you follow me. It's the place of crucifixion, the place of sacrifice, and then the glory. So the disciples are discouraged, and they're tired. He has, they have left the Jewish area, and they've gone up to Caesarea Philippi, a pagan area, so that he can begin to teach them. He needs to prepare them in this last part of his ministry for when he's going to be gone. And I just kind of did a rough guess. They've, they've traveled 100, 150 miles by the time they've gone clear up to Tyre and Sidon, back down, up to Caesarea Philippi, and then now they're coming back, and they stop at a high mountain. We don't know what mountain this is. It's somewhere on the way back. Maybe it's Mount Tabor. But someplace, and they're tired. Now, some commentator says, you know, that maybe the guys that got left behind were jealous. Now, I don't know if, how much you've been around frontline ministry like that, but I think every time he calls Peter, James, and John, the rest of the guys say, yeah, that's okay, you guys go. You know, going to deal with some demon-possessed, with some death. You know, he takes them in when the little girl has died. No, well, that's fine, you guys go. And, and this time, I, just my conjecture, but I think when he takes them up in the mountain, Peter, James, and John are like, oh, okay, we'll go with you, because it said he led them up the mountain. So I don't think the rest were all that pain that he didn't take them with him. They probably went to sleep right away because Peter, James, and John, if you read the account in Luke, they get up to the top, and that's what they do. They go to sleep. Now, I had my Uncle Jerry. He's with the Lord now, but he was a hard-working man, worked outside, and any time he sat down in a chair whew, to sleep, he just boomed, sleeping. And then he could get up as soon as he's ready. You know, he'd get up, open his eyes, he's ready to go again. But I think that's what these guys were. They're hard-working men. They walk everywhere they go. They're walking. So when there's a chance, take a nap. It says there in chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took them with him, Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments were as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, I think the parallel passes this experience they're having is in Exodus chapter 33. Now remember, the disciples, they're discouraged because they keep hearing this message from the Lord, he's going to die, and yet they see what could happen. If he would just take the reins politically, they could be, he, he could be king. And they're still arguing in the next chapter, come to 18, about who's going to be the greatest. So they're not, they're not, they're not getting what he's teaching them but they're distracted. And their focus is not the glory of God. Their focus by that argument they're going to be having is what spot do I get? That continues all the way to his death. Moses was having the experience with the Lord that he had been called up to the mountain. Now listen, the people had heard the voice of God. He spoke the law to the, to the whole nation of Israel. And after God done, God done speaking, somebody went and told Moses, hey, listen, tell God not to talk to us anymore because it scares the life out of us. You just go talk to him. And before he goes up in the mountain, he calls all the elders of Israel, and God comes down and he eats with them. And there's an amazing verse, and he did not kill them. The God of glory came and sat with the elders and ate with them. 
Then he called Moses up on top of the mountain to give him the law. And the Bible says God came down like a furnace and surrounded Moses, and there they were. But they didn't even get finished before the children of Israel forgot all of those amazing experiences with the God of the universe. And they said, well, we don't know what happened to this guy, Moses. That guy, he went up there. I don't know. He's probably got burned up by the fire. So we need a God to worship. So Aaron, the high priest of God, says, well, everybody, you know, break off your earrings and bring your gold in. We'll make us a... And so he made a calf like they had in Egypt, a false god. They begin to worship, and as they're worshiping, they begin to be immoral. And God says to Moses, get down and straighten that mess out. Moses begins to walk down with Joshua, and Joshua says, it's like I hear the sound of war. And Moses says, no, it's not war, that's partying. And they finally get to the crest of the hill where they can see, and they see this debauchery going on and Moses takes and throws down the tablets that God had written with the finger of his own hand and he goes down and he takes the calf and he grinds it to powder puts in the water makes the people drink of it and then God disciplines the people and many people die now every day Moses would go into the tent of meeting and the people would come out and stand at the gate at the doors of their tents while he was inside he would come out and give them the word from God. And the Bible said that Moses had the experience that God talked to him face to face like a man talks to his friend. That's why Moses' whole life was wrapped up in the glory of God. He wasn't perfect, but probably the greatest leader that God had ever, that that the world had ever seen or has ever seen besides Jesus because Moses just did what God told him to do because he fellowshiped with him. And his whole focus was the glory of God. More than once, God would say, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. But Moses, because of his desire for the glory of God, would pray and say, no, Lord, you know, we don't want to do that. Was that God was changing his mind? Well, the Bible says God changed his mind. But I think it was really more God making sure Moses was on task. Should we do this, Moses? Moses' goal was the glory of God because of his relationship with God. And so he talked to Moses, and Moses, I'll tell you what. I see the people have repented, but I'll send an angel before you, and you guys can go up to the promised land, but I am not going to go with you because if I do, I'll probably just kill everybody because this is an obstinate and rebellious people. Moses, in his conversation with the Lord, says, Lord... That is not going to happen. If you don't go with us, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Isn't that ought to be the goal for every one of our lives? I know as elders, that's our focus. We hear a lot, and there's been books written in Christian circles about just get a really big, great, big vision for God and accomplish it. That will honor God. Listen, it's a challenge just trying to keep up. You don't have to think up big ideas for God. He's got his own ideas And his ways are not our ways because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. So our responsibility as elders, your responsibility in your own personal lives is what is God's assignment? Not can we afford it, not can we we see how we can get that done, but what is God's assignment? And so... Moses intercedes, and he says, we're not going to go anywhere without you. 
in verse 17 of Exodus 33, the Lord says to Moses, I will do these things of which you have spoken. Okay, I'll go with you. I'll bless you. And then Moses works up this courage, and Charles Spurgeon says, this is the greatest request that a human being has ever asked of God. And as soon as the request came out of Moses' lips, Charles Spurgeon said, surely his knees smote one another and his heart melted that he would ask such an amazing, audacious request. Moses said this, Lord, would you show me your glory? And God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. But I'll show you my glory. I will make all my goodness to pass before you. Spurgeon says, now, what attribute is, is God about to show Moses? Show me your glory. Will he show him his justice? Will he show him his holiness? Will he show him his wrath? Will he show him his power? Will he break yon cedar and show him his almighty? Will he rend yonder mountain and show him that he can be angry? Will he bring his sins to remembrance and show that he is omniscient? No. Hear the still, small voice. I will make all my goodness pass before you. Ah, the goodness of God is God's glory. God's greatest glory is his goodness. So he calls Moses up to the mountain. And he said, I'm going to put you on this place. And there's a cleft there. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over that cleft. I'm going to pass by with my back. And you'll just see my back. And as he went, he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, great and mighty, bringing goodness and mercy and also not remembering the sins, but not forgetting and leaving the guilty unpunished to the second and third generation. And what is Jesus but God's goodness passing before the whole nation of Israel? You see the parallel there? The difference is Peter, James, and John, they didn't even know to ask the question, show me your glory, but Jesus knew that's what they needed. They needed a glimpse of his majesty because of all the things he was going to carry them through as they went into the gospel after he, with the gospel after he went back to heaven. So God passes before Moses and he said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses' response, Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. Now, when you read the other accounts, you find that the, the, the reason I keep saying these guys were tired, uh, Peter, James, and John, is because in Luke chapter 9, the passage there is uh, verse 26 through 33, it says they, they woke up. So they went up there. They're very tired. They fell asleep. And when they woke up, they see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah there speaking. And what were they speaking about? The Bible says they were talking about his departure and the work he was going to do in Jerusalem. They were talking about his coming sacrifice, his crucifixion for sin. Isn't it amazing? 
that God told Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. But Moses, when the second time God told him to speak to the rock, not strike the rock, and Moses in anger because of the people struck the rock, God says, you, you broke my word. You were disobedient. You're not going to see the land. And so when it came time, Moses was able to get to a high place, see over into the land, then God took him and buried him himself so that his bones would not become uh, a source of idolatry to the people of Israel. But now Moses is able to see the promise the promised one, the Messiah in the land of Israel and him and Elijah and Jesus talked about the gospel and about the coming crucifixion and how Jesus would accomplish his purpose on earth. Now, if you just imagine with me what that might have been like. These guys are sleeping. They wake up to this amazing scene that Jesus, his face is, they can't even look at his face. It shines like the sun. His his clothes are glowing, and there's Moses and Elijah. And I don't know who woke up first. John, probably, he was the youngest, and so he elbows his brother, and his brother elbows Peter and said, do you see what I'm seeing? Yeah, we see it. Okay, so we're not dreaming. Look, there's Moses and Elijah. Yeah, and how do we even know that? I don't know. There's no pictures of Moses and Elijah. They've been dead for hundreds of years. But the Bible says in heaven, we're going to be known as we are known. I'm not going to be name tags. You're just going to know who people are. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So there they are, and they know who he's talking to. Now, why Moses? Moses brought the law, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. And Elijah was the fearless, courageous prophet who spoke for God when it seemed like no one else was standing for truth. And there is Jesus, the fulfillment. Now it says in Luke, because Peter didn't know what to do, but he felt like, well, you got to say something. He says, Lord, if you want to, uh, if you want me to, I will build, uh, you know, some booths here, some tabernacles right here. We'll build some, some shelters for you and Moses and Elijah. Now some say it's possible that it's the time when they're having the Feast of Booths back in Jerusalem. We don't know. Or probably, Peter's thinking to himself, okay, I got that wrong when I said Jesus is not going to go to the cross, but look, here's Moses and Elijah. And doesn't the Old Testament say that Elijah's going to come and restore all things? The Messiah will come and he'll rule. And, I mean, we got the generals here now. This is the place. We'll, we'll just start here. We'll, we'll build some things here. And so this idea hits his brain. So many times we think just because an idea hits your brain, it's the Lord because maybe it's kind of religious. No, that wasn't the Lord. And it says, as they're departing. So the other two were already, already departing. And Peter says, Lord, why don't I just build three places here? We can all stay here. And all of a sudden, this cloud comes and surrounds them all. And a voice from the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You listen to him. And the Bible says from the moment they woke up and saw, they were terrified because that's what a glorified Savior, the impact it will have. Even when angels show up, people hit the ground. People talk about they had this experience, an angel came and they just talked and they did all this stuff. No, no, that's not an angel from God. 
was an angel from God shows up, it's a fearful, fearful thing. You see the Roman soldiers, these hardened warriors? When the angel showed up to roll the stone away, they fainted like dead men. Such was the fear that overcame them. And the voice is there. And I'm sure these disciples think, oh, we're about to be wiped out. And then Jesus comes over and puts his hand and says, don't be afraid. And they look up. Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus is back looking the way he did before. And I'm sure the the trip back down the mountain was very quiet. I'm not going to talk again until we get. So somebody said, okay, so... Let's get this right. Did not the Bible, you continue to read in the passage, doesn't the scripture say that Elijah is going to come and restore all things? And Jesus says, yes, that's what the scripture says. And Elijah has come. And they did whatever they, they wanted to him. And the disciples realized they were talking, he was talking about John the Baptist, that John came in the spirit of Elijah, prepare the way for the nation, for, for the Savior to offer the nation a legitimate opportunity to make him king. And they rejected him. They rejected him. They get down to the bottom of the mountain. We've seen the, the majesty of the king. Because you see what's going on is Jesus is preparing them. He's preparing them to carry the gospel to all the world after he leaves. So they get a glimpse of his glory that will last them for the rest of their life. John says in the first chapter of his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He's talking about this. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, the one and only, full of grace and truth. And Peter wrote in 2 Peter, We had that experience, and we heard the voice. We know that he is God, very God. He's our Savior. And what he said was true. We didn't follow cleverly devised fables. This is the real deal. They get down to the bottom of the mountain, and there's this father with his only son that's demon-possessed. And the son is, whenever the demon wants, he throws him into the fire Whenever he wants, he throws him into water to drown him. You see, Satan is out to destroy your life. He wants to destroy not just believers, but anything God has created, Satan wants to destroy. You think today you don't have Christ and you think you determine your own path. You just get an education, get a good job, get a good retirement, see some things, enjoy life, and you have no idea that without Christ, any moment, Satan can come over and take over your life any moment. I think our nation is more and more influenced by demonism because as our nation turns its back on God, the influence of Satan grows. Now, we know that Satan can't possess a believer because the Bible says in 1 John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But I want you to know, anytime Satan wants, if you don't belong to Christ, he can destroy your life. And if you think you got this great plan, you have time also and chance. And that's why James says, what's your life but a vapor? appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Then you have the danger of Satan. And this poor dad was at his wit's end. His son could be killed at any moment by this demon. That's what demons do is they destroy. 
And the disciples had all this time while Jesus was up and they couldn't cast the demon out. And he said, Lord, help me. And almost under his breath, Jesus murmurs, how long do I have to put up with this perverse, twisted generation, this sinful generation? He's not, just, he's not talking, he's almost under his breath, parallel to what the father was saying before about the nation, this obstinate people. You see, you had the crowd showing up for the show. They weren't interested in following Jesus. The same people there for the show are going to cry for his death in Jerusalem. Crucify him, crucify him. And then there's the Pharisees and Sadducees that are just trying to trip him up so he can say something wrong so they can say, Let's, there he is, he's worthy of death. And there's the disciples who've lost faith. He's given them the power over, over demons, but they've lost faith. They're discouraged. They, 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 it's not about God's glory. It's about what we can do and what we can't do. And they're discouraged and they're embarrassed. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And this is where Jesus said, do you believe? And the father says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus casts out the demon and the demon has one good last throw and he throws this little boy down and he lays there like he's dead. And Jesus goes over and says, get up, son. He takes his hand, the little boy stands up and now he can run and play with other boys. He's been healed. And so as they continue to walk, Jesus, the disciples ask Jesus, why, why couldn't we cast the demon out? He says, because you have little faith. They lost faith. Just like Peter, James, and John, they, they, were, they didn't know what was going on. They, they thought this kingdom was coming, and it was, they were going to have a part of this kingdom, and this argument goes on. Who's the greatest? Who's going to get the best spots in the kingdom? And it wasn't about that. They couldn't see how possibly God would establish his kingdom through a death on the cross. And Jesus said also, because this kind doesn't come out without prayer and fasting. He said, but if you had... The faith, like the faith, like the grain of a mustard seed. Little tiny faith? Well, it's not just little tiny faith. Remember, he's taught about mustard seeds before, how they're so small, but they grow up and become almost like a tree. See, there's life. There's life. They were losing life. Now, if you say, well, how does that, that go together? You know, prayer and fasting and discipline, and yet Jesus threw them out immediately. It's because... When God calls us to something and it's God's assignment, you stay with it because the faith that he has given you just keeps you going and keeps you focused on God's assignment. We are having a Bible study some years ago at Dr. Bragg's house and, and I remember we came to a passage, a parallel passage in Luke where Jesus talks about you just had the grain of a mustard seed and my friend Kyle Coster said, fellas, I was thinking about this. And what did Jesus already say about seeds? Seed can't reproduce unless it falls into the ground. You see, our life is not going to be about the glory of God until we die to ourself and what we want. You're struggling in your marriage. You're struggling on your job. You're struggling with your purpose. And you're distracted. And you're not getting what you think you want out of life or your ministry or, or your, your business. What's God trying to do? See, because Paul wrote and he said, whether you eat therefore or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So God's purpose may not be your purpose because you're on a different page than the Lord is in your life. 
What's God trying to do? And sometimes that's painful. Somebody's making decisions. You know, somebody's doing something different. You say, well, that's, that's not okay. Forget them. I'm not doing that. Really, is that what God's saying? Maybe that ornery boss you gave doesn't need to see you get justice. He needs to see the grace of Jesus Christ in your life so you'll have an opportunity to speak the grace of God to him. I don't know. But he said, if you had the grain of a, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to the mountain, be cast into the sea. Now, we don't have a record of any apostles casting uh, mountains into the sea. Uh, it, it, was, it was something that teachers said. If you, if you take my teaching, my teaching will really, you could just cast mountains into seas. And what Jesus is saying, if you will be obedient to God's assignment by faith, you'll see impossible things done. It's not about you. We have that great chapter again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, we preach not ourselves. It's about the grace of God. It's about what God's trying to do for his glory. And this last section, so we see the, the great majesty, the mighty glory of God. Then we see his power in casting out this demon and lastly in this chapter, we see the sovereignty of the king. The sovereignty, that means that the sovereign is in control of everything. Some come to this and they say, well, this shows Jesus' poverty. He doesn't even have ta- money to pay the, the tax. Now, there was a tax that was first instituted for the temple when they were putting together uh, money to have silver and gold and things done. So you had the articles of worship in the temple and the tabernacle, and, and they just kept the tax going for the service of ministry of the, of the temple. So it was a responsibility every year, give this small. It was the same, rich and poor, every man uh, of, of Asian majority had to give this tax. So Jesus says, first of all, he gives them, asks them a question. Because they come to Peter and say, does your master pay the tax? They're looking for something. And, so, and Peter says, uh, yeah, he does. Right, Lord? So he says, Peter, um, to who do kings get taxes from? You know, kingdoms have to run. They have to support armies, feed armies, uh, just take care of their big... And so they, in order to do that, you have to have taxes, whether it's tax on goods that are sold or taxes on the roads as people travel through your kingdom. There has to be taxes. Now he says, who does the king tax? His own children? No. Strangers. People that aren't part of his family. He says, Peter, that whole temple thing is about worship. I'm the king. I don't need to pay the tax. And we see his graciousness, but so that we are not a fence, we're going to pay the tax. Now, I think when he tells Peter, I want you to go down and go fishing, and I want you to take a line and catch one fish. And when you pull that fish out, there's going to be some money in the fish's mouth, and then you go t- pay the tax for me and the tax for you. I don't think it shows Jesus' poverty. I think it shows his sovereignty. His sovereignty. And I think it's a reminder to us that we understand when God gives an assignment, whether it's a missionary endeavor or building a building or an evangelistic outreach 
or in your family as God calls you to establish business and to go and serve him different places. That if it's God's call, William Carey said, God's work done God's way will never lack for God's supply. That you know the God of the universe can provide for you. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the people would forget and they thought, well, God needed all these sacrifices because he was hungry. And so we got to go do these sacrifices because God can eat the smoke, I guess. And God tells them in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. See, I think he shows his sovereignty that he can tell a fish to go find some money in the bottom of the lake and bring it to Peter. And they didn't understand that God's in control. So when things happen that looks like it's out of their control, they can rest just like we can. That our God still sits on the throne. And there's this amazing verse in Acts 2, 23 where Peter's preaching that great uh, sermon there at the day of Pentecost, and he's talking about Jesus' crucifixion. He said, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Isn't that amazing? God's predetermined plan. Peter got God's sovereignty. Whether it's a little tax out of a fish's mouth, or God using godless men to accomplish his plan. Our king is sovereign. Father, we thank you that you are in control and that we are safe in your hands. And you've said, don't fear them that can take away your your life from your body, but fear him that can cast both body and soul into hell. And Lord, we want to accomplish your will for our lives in our time and our place. And so, Lord, give, help us to be a people. Challenge us that we are a people that seeks for your glory, that operates in your power and rests in your sovereignty, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those who are outside your grace. Lord, they're living dangerous lives on the brink of eternity, just right on the edge. Anytime Satan could push them over, Lord, I pray that you'd reach out and draw them to yourself. Help them to see the, the death and their sin and the life in the Savior. Give them faith to believe and to trust you, to submit to the gospel. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.